the leader of an alleged sex cult has been arrested in Mexico. A so-called self-help guru allegedly coerced women into having sex with him and also branded them as part of an initiation ceremony. At the heart of Nexium training is something called intensives, which former members say are like group therapy, running as long as 14 hours a day and up to 16 days. Ranieri was revered by the group as the smartest man in the world. To me, one of the greatest ironies of the story is that Catherine joined this group looking to find greater self-empowerment, to be more empowered. Boy, oh boy, are you ever empowered now. <laughs> This woman, this princess, took an Uzi and aimed it at everyone who dared to threaten her daughter's safety. And there is a lesson there. It's hard for me to put into words how much today's show means to me. How much my longtime friend, actress, royal, activist, and now memoirist, Catherine Oxenberg, means to me and my family. And how terrified we have been that her efforts to save her beautiful indie might have ended in vain. They did not, however. Today's show is a celebratory one, including a really fun message that India has given to me to give to you at the end of the show. And timely, since the paperback release of Captive, A Mother's Crusade to Save Her Daughter from a Terrifying Cult, is in a few days. I'm Linda Sievertson, and you are at the Beautiful Writers Podcast. And to give you a little backstory, one of the former stars of 80s TV dynasty fame, Catherine Oxenberg, aka Amanda Carrington, introduces her 20-year-old daughter, India, to a business and leadership seminar only to watch helplessly, as it appears she is being systematically brainwashed by the group's charismatic leader. Over several years, Mother does everything she can to warn her daughter about Keith Raniere and his organization, Nexium. But Sweet India joins a secret, elite sorority of women within the group, believing it's about female empowerment, but instead, she's indoctrinated and blackmailed into a harem. Her losses are heartbreaking. I've had leading thriller authors here on this show, but this thriller is true. And as the plot thickens and the urgency intensifies, the payoff is all the sweeter as you celebrate with the author when this diabolical Svengali is arrested and his alleged multinational money laundering sex trafficking world crashes around him. People have been investigating Nexium and Keith for decades and the newer DOS, an acronym for the harem. But with endless fortunes at his disposal through multiple heiresses, no one stood a chance. So how could he have foreseen the lengths to which India's mother would go to save her? or the power of her pen, or how through her platform, the media would be anything but an enemy of the people. In Catherine's last-ditch effort to save her baby girl from murder, suicide, or prison, as will likely be the case with Smallville actress and cult member Allison Mack, the media became a savior to Catherine and the people, giving her a spotlight from which to protect countless women, including, eventually, her daughter. 23 years ago, I interviewed my friend Catherine for something like eight hours for my first book. In the intro to her chapter, I wrote that she is magical, otherworldly, and courageous. Kath comes from a long line of bigger-than-life ancestors from the royal families of Europe. Her mother, the Princess of Yugoslavia, is a human rights activist and a former presidential candidate for Serbia. But even as I studied Catherine for months at a time while my family and I lived in her home, 
I never could have foreseen that she would have to depend on that magic and her courage to save the life of Indy. In keeping with the mama I know, the timing of the paperback release, you guys, of Captive, it's miraculous. When Simon is used to release the hardbound version, Keith had just been arrested. No one knew his fate or if Indy would ever come home. Mother and daughter are now blessedly reunited. It hasn't been without its harrowing details, like how their Malibu home burned to the ground late last year in the Woolsey fire, destroying everything they owned, other than a statue of the Hindu god Ganesh, the remover of obstacles, (laughs) the god of beginnings. Well, in a true new beginning, just last week, the jury found Keith Ranieri guilty on all counts. His sentencing will come later this summer, where we'll find out how long this self-proclaimed grand master will be the one living without his freedom, possibly even for life. As I think about how to wrap up this summary, I'm reminded of a story Catherine told me years ago for Lives Charmed, a story about intention and faith. It was during a time where she was out of work and needed to sell her house in Los Angeles. It was taking so long, she worried she wouldn't be able to support herself. The house was on the market for two years, and she said she was biting her fingernails, fretting, banging her head against the walls, kicking and screaming, with no trust whatsoever that she was being taken care of. And then, just as the market peaked, it sold. For more than $200,000 over the asking price two years before, the price she couldn't even get one offer on. I think of the slow, often blind, and treacherous path that Catherine has had to travel, securing India's freedom and about the many girls she was able to save before ever knowing if India would be one of them. And I see divine timing still at work in her world. It's been over a quarter of a century since this woman, now an author, first had me spellbound, and I still am. Welcome. Kath, I've been telling you to write a book for 26 years now. But I never anticipated that you would have such an urgent need. How the hell did this book come about? Well, I got a backtrack of why I decided to write this book because it was a really difficult decision. I had found out that India was in jeopardy in this cult called Nexium. I had done an intervention and failed. I had then made the horrendous decision to out her in the press because I was afraid that her life was at risk and that she was in severe danger and that she was being coerced to break the law without even knowing she was breaking the law and could face serious, serious consequences. So I was beside myself. I made the decision, okay, so outing her, there were no good choices, was better than letting her perhaps have her life completely ruined the way Alison Mack's life is ruined. She was going yeah. down that road. Then I hired the team of lawyers, and so I was trying to figure out what I could possibly do if I had no ability to affect her or to get her out. I was able to get some other young women out, and then I researched with lawyers about what kind of crimes this organization could be perpetrating, and we found evidence of lots, including racketeering, sex trafficking, and a lot of things that at first didn't seem evident the way that it was set up. And you said then you said new- you were able to get some women out. Catherine, you got hundreds yes. of women out, a lot of women. Well, let's just say in the beginning, I was able to convince the women who were primed to go to Albany to get branded. Right. The ones that I could get their numbers, I was able to prevent them from going. And actually at that point, 
I kind of spooked them by saying, you know, this group is involved in criminal activities. The government is going to move in and raid. None of that had happened. This was me scaring them because I didn't want them to get branded. And I was afraid of what the consequences could be as they were subordinate to India in certain cases. Then when the press broke, I went to the government with a bunch of evidence, which spelled out, in my opinion, racketeering, tax evasion, money laundering, identity theft. I had a lot of evidence. <laughs> like a massive binder full. <laughs> yes, I did. It's one of the few things that survived the fire is this massive binder full. So I went to the state attorney general's office up in Albany and handed them in. Then I found out that one of my lawyers got a call from one of the prosecutors in the Eastern District of New York and said, we're taking this very seriously. They'd obviously seen me in the news and they'd obviously read the New York Times and they decided they were going to investigate. And they said, you don't have to carry the burden of this on your shoulders alone anymore. And just so you know, the FBI is moving in aggressively. That was November 9th, 2017. From there, besides speaking on a couple of occasions with the prosecution and the FBI, I was really left in the dark. So. I had no idea. This is almost two years ago. I had no idea if they were going to follow through. Yeah. At that point, Keith had fled to Mexico. And I was thinking to myself, if this investigation fizzles out, which it has in the past when other people have brought evidence yeah. against this group, nothing ever happened. How am I going to get this information out there? How am I going to reach my daughter? And I signed with a literary agent and she had me write a proposal, and literally I got six, this is in December of 2017, no one had been arrested, nothing was happening publicly with the government in terms of pursuing these criminals, and Simon and Schuster basically signed a deal with me with no, there's no ending. <laughs> I love so that. I've never heard of any first-time writer getting a book deal with no ending. <laughs> so it took a lot of faith, and my agent is pretty damn incredible. So... Here I'm writing from January 2018 in real time. As events are unfolding, I am writing the story. And that's why I don't know what's on the next page. And it was a very harrowing time because I had no contact with India at all. And then periodically I would get little tidbits from be patient from my lawyers. Be patient. You may not see anything, but there's stuff going on. And lo and behold, in February of 2018, I start to hear rumors that they're closing in on Keith, who everyone had lost contact with because he was in Mexico. Right. So at that point, why do you continue to write a book when people start, well, because I'd made a commitment to write this book. <laughs> but I feel. But the organization started to fall apart. First, Keith was arrested, then Allison was arrested, then Claire Bronfman and four other female defense. I think three others were arrested during that period, literally days before the book went to publish. The book came out, I think, August the 7th or 8th of 2018. Yeah. And people were getting arrested on July 26th. Huh? <laughs> and I kept calling the publisher, my editor, and saying, can we just add this one more thing, one more thing? It was like, Squeezing because the plot kept unfolding. I know. And the plot, it, it reads crazy. like a suspense novel. It could not <laughs> have been more divinely orchestrated from a timing standpoint. I know. It's ridiculous. And then the fact that the paperback is slated to come out coincidentally. Right after. <laughs> the, right after the trial. The book, they could not have predicted this. 
Like if you had a crystal ball, I honestly, it's sort of magical. For a nightmare, and it has been a nightmare. It is a magical, absolutely magical outcome. I was in court last week for first for closing argument. And then I rushed to court and just made it in time for the verdict to be read. But during a break in closing arguments, there was an FBI agent that came up to me and she gave me a big bear hug and I hadn't met her before. And she said, you know, I just graduated from Quantico. This is my first assignment. No. And yeah. And she said, I watched you before I was ever involved on the news break this story. And she said, you knew what was going on from the beginning. And she said, thank you. Thank you, mom. And I was like, wow, that meant a lot to me. (laughs) Yeah, you were a mother on a mission from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone thought I was crazy and an alarmist and exaggerating. And Uh it was too crazy, the things that I was accusing these people of. And it was all true and, and worse. It was way worse. It was even worse. I mean, that's what's so amazing about the book. For the podcast, I've had Lee Child on, who's the author of the Jack Reacher series, and I've had Dean Koontz on, who has sold, I think, a half a billion books. Wow. And his books are thrillers. And I've had Tosca Lee on. So I've read a lot of thriller. In fact, this weekend, I just dug in finally to Dean Koontz's fourth and the finale of the Jane Hawk series. And so... My head is always in thriller lately, and I'm reading your book for a second time, just going, it's just the same. The plot lines are the same, and it's political, and it's cultural, and it's historical. And you're looking at this going, oh, my God, law enforcement has been paid off in some cases, and politicians have been paid off, and celebrities, and we're dealing with money laundering in foreign countries, and it's like so epic, Catherine. It's so effing epic. I know. I know. It's so scary. So it's scary. So it's like, scary. did she have to pick such a giant playing field with so much jeopardy? It was insane. Okay, <laughs> but I'm thinking about you, and I'm thinking about how you have always been epic. Okay, so I'm just going to go back in time. <laughs> I'm going to oh, go yeah. back in time okay. a little bit. I'm thinking about, so when I met you, I remember... India waddled up to Tosh. She was one. Tosh was like a, a year and a half. She waddled up to him at the park, and they were like thick as thieves ever after. But I remember watching you, and from the weirdest things that happened, like Tosh was throwing a ball in your house one day and hit, I want to say it was a Fabergé egg that you had from the Russian royal family that was on the mantle that went crashing to the floor. But it, I don't know. In my mind, it was priceless. And I start crying. Tosh is scared as hell, thinks he's going to get in so much trouble. And you're like, don't worry about it. It's fine. You always had this crazy, playful side to you, this amazingly abundant side, the side of you that had food fights with your cousin, Prince Charles at Windsor. And then there was this other side of you that was so tragic from your grandfather and your mother as a four-year-old fleeing the palace as they're having to leave in World War II because he's being labeled a Hitler sympathizer, and he's not. And you're incested in your own family, not by your mother or your father, but people don't believe you. You had so much trauma. You're a descendant of Catherine the Great. You, What was that family that was murdered? Yeah. So you're a descendant of them. Do you ever sit here and think, could I just be normal for a while? Could we just do chill? Well, yeah, actually, I have recently, especially on my part. Yes, I have definitely thought chill would be a plus. Chill would be nice, right? Yes. 
And I remember when I met you, it was epic in Los Angeles at the time. I met you. We move in. Remember we had that crazy landlord and you're like, oh, just come live with us for a while. And so we show up, my husband, my little kid, we show up, we move into your house in your gorgeous estate. You're giving us this great place to live. And then suddenly the riots happen and we oh, go yeah, out your door know. and Los Angeles is on lockdown and there's fires everywhere. There's thousands of people injured. More than 60 people die. And yeah. then I leave your house one day to go take care of Brandon Lee's cats. And he's just been shot on the set of The Crow, and he dies. And then you introduce us to Cato, Caitlin, who my ex-husband goes to help. And he says to me in your living room, he's moving into Nicole Brown Simpson's. He goes, you've lived in slippery homes as a pet sitter. Should I do it? And I go, don't even think about it. I said, you tend to get embroiled in the drama of whomever owns the big house. Do you remember that? Oh, shoot. (laughs) No, No, I don't. Oh, my God. (laughs) But what I'm saying is, from the minute I met you, it was <laughs> it was epic. <laughs> but look what you did, Kath. I don't think anybody who's used to just regular energy could have pulled off what you pulled off. Having dealt with so much victimization in your life, I think it gave you the kind of courage and the what the fuck, who cares anymore kind of mentality to be able to do this. As I'm reading your book, I'm going, you know what? She was going to die. If India died, she was going to die anyway. So if you're at that point, then Mm -hmm. it's almost like you're unstoppable. Do you feel that way? I don't think it was like that. It was more, let me put my head back there. It was more something ignited in me that was very primal. Mm. And I operated from there. And I didn't care who said no to me. There was a piece that ignited that I don't know if I've ever been in touch with before that I knew what I had to do. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew I had to do it. And there was an internal simplicity to my decision-making process. And I was up against a lot of naysayers and a lot of haters, but it didn't matter. It's like I was one-pointed, one-focused, and I wasn't going to stop and I wasn't going to give up. And that's kind of my mindset. But I'm telling you, I was tapping into a place that I haven't experienced inside myself. And maybe that is a mother's love in the worst possible circumstance of what ignites in terms of this primal desire, not more than a desire, but primal whatever to save your child. That's all I can explain it as. I don't feel like I was prepared or had anything. I had no context I'd never been in a situation like this before, but somehow one step at a time, I knew what to do and it's inexplicable. Wow. I'm just so in awe and I'm so proud of you. I just can't even imagine having that kind of courage, really. Well, the ultimate irony is it started off being about how could I rescue India and I failed. And then it was, okay, well, how can I rescue all the other girls? So my heart opened. And the more stubborn she was, the more inclusive my heart became. And if she had responded to the intervention and left then, Keith would still be up and running and branding, and possibly now it would be thousands of people because it was growing exponentially as each slave enrolled five or six slaves of their own. Who knows? His Machiavellian vision was to have hundreds of thousands of women across the world branded as his slaves doing his bidding, changing elections, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. Horrible, horrible. So and he was connected, very, so it wasn't so totally 
um, impossible. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't unbelievable with exactly with the level of kind of clout that he had access to and unlimited funds. Unlimited money. The fact that there were millions of dollars left after everything, all the money he went through, the fact that there was so much cash still all over the place for this guy was just staggering. Well, worse than that, he has one of the wealthiest families in America, the Seagrams, two of the Bronfman sisters who bankrolled him. Right. To the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Claire Bronfman has spent over $14 million on his defense fund. And that includes the other defendants. So this is somebody who has been backed in his criminal enterprise since 2003 and before with another heiress. And that's why nobody wanted to take them on. Nobody had the funds, basically, to fight right. to fight this group. Well, and that's why your media blitz was so effective. Because talk about the power of the pen. You had the power of the yeah. pen and the power of the microphone. I know. Thank God. That's thank God. Stuff. Yes. Well, what do you call it? Luck or just good placement? Or thank God that I had enough of a public platform that yeah. it was... Enough to get the right amount of attention. Yeah. Thank God. I remember I was in Carmel. I was giving a retreat. It was morning and I was about ready to go down to breakfast and I opened up my computer. And you couldn't not click on the image of that branded woman. You couldn't not click on it. So I thought, well, let me just, branding? What the hell? Let me just check really quick. So I'm reading this New York Times piece, having no idea that India is in it. No idea that you're in it. And India, I had just invited her, I don't know, maybe a year, 16 months or something. Before that, she and I had gone to a book signing. I think I took her to a Gretchen Rubin event in Santa Monica. And she had talked to me about the group. And she had told me about the group before. And and she was just so proud of it because she's such a big heart. And she was helping people. And she was teaching kids. And the charity in Mexico, she was so happy. And, you know, God, just the purest soul ever. And yeah. so she's telling me about it and how good she feels about the good she's doing. And I was so happy for her because she just seemed so beautiful as always and so heartfelt. But I didn't want to go because I've mm-hmm. just done too much of that stuff, like so yeah. over it. I had already gotten to the place a couple years before you did, which was, damn, I've been in the self-help world a long time. Ghostwritten a couple bestsellers for self-helpers. I've seen the underbelly for a long time, kind of over it. Mm-hmm. So I was sick of those things. And the last couple of times I'd been to your house were for beautiful spiritual events, but I was over it. I was dating a really grounded corporate guy who was kind of like, hey, Lynn, could we just help ourselves? And so that's my mindset. I'm in that mindset when I'm with Indy. And she's telling me about this great thing. And I'm kind of like, you know what, baby, good for you, but I'm not interested. And she was great Mm -hmm. because she had not one ounce of pushiness ever, ever about her. She just was like, okay, Linda, if you ever want to see it, let me know. So then Taj calls me and he goes, Mom, India is doing this thing. And he goes, I don't really want to know about it. And I said, you know what, babe? She's not pushing you, is she? And he goes, no, not at all. And I go, then just don't know about it if you don't want to. So that was our mindset, loving from afar. And I see this Mm -hmm. and I'm like, holy mother of God. Because what you had to do, Catherine, to get that as a front page thing in the New York Times that was the most brilliant thing you could ever do because didn't the FBI just jump on the case instantly after that? You get them interested before that, right? I couldn't get them interested, yeah, but I didn't actually reach out to the New York Times. They no, reached you didn't. Out to me. No, 
it was happenstance. It was mutual friends who reached out to Barry Meyer. Thank God, because he's one of the few journalists that law enforcement actually listens right? to. And so he reached out. He started to investigate. And we were exclusive with the New York Times. So I had all these other publications that I'd reached out to, including People magazine. But they were all in second position. So as long as they all had to wait every, yeah, for three months. Agony. Agony. Yeah. It was like giving birth. It was agony. Because the whole time you're thinking India could be killed or India could commit suicide because this guy loves honor suicide. Let's just glorify that for the cause. Exactly. So in the meantime, you're waiting for the New York Times piece to come out. And are you writing this whole time? Yes. And this is what was so bizarre. I wasn't writing to write a book. I was writing to protect myself because I was getting threats. And for some reason, I just was extremely careful to keep notes in my journal to the tune of by the time I handed them over to my co-writer, I had 500 pages. But you've, oh, and this is why I always told you to write a book. You've always been an amazing journaler. You're brilliant and you always have it. This is why you were going to go to Harvard before you started modeling. You're a genius IQ. You were at top of your class in school. So I'm so glad that you were writing the whole time and I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised you have 500 pages. Thank you. I don't know how brilliant I was to invite India to go to the original introduction with me in the first place. <laughs> but you know what, Catherine? It's so easy as parents to get excited about something for our kids and to cheerlead ourselves right off a cliff. I had Tosh in this self-help group. I'm not going to say which one. Big time here in Los Angeles. When I was going through my divorce, I asked everybody I knew who was really happy and successful. And I said, what are you doing? Because Tosh and I are drowning. What do we do? And seven of the 10 I talked to all said, oh, I did this one thing and it was the best thing I ever did. So I signed mm-hmm. Tasha me up. We start going to these Monday night meet. We go to a weekend workshop that was amazing and scary and kind of creepy, but amazing. Mm-hmm. And then we start going to these Monday night events. And granted, everything got way better. Our lives got way better. And one day, my fiance says to me, hey, can I have Mondays with you? What's the deal? Can you stop going? And I said, okay, so Tasha and I stopped. And the leader who had a career elsewhere, it wasn't a religion. This wasn't like his full-time gig. He was a volunteer, Mm -hmm. but he was gung-ho and he loved it. Mm -hmm. He called me up and he goes, Linda, but you and Tasha are doing so much better. And I said, I know. Thank you. We've got some great tools and we're done. And he goes, but no, 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 your magic came from us. And oh, oh God. my God, Catherine, I had that moment mm-hmm. that you had in the book where you realized right then and there, oh my God, this is a cult. And yeah. I said to him, I said, stop right there. I said, I can get wisdom from a television show. I can get it from a friend mm-hmm. who just happens to say something. I can get it from a song. I said, God doesn't come just through you. God is everywhere. And he started yeah. to fight me and I hung up and I thought, Jesus, what did I just save us from? Mm. It's that easy to give away our power, to think that someone else has answers we can't otherwise access. Yeah, it is that easy. All right, so I want to talk about the writing process. How did you find your writer and how the heck did she respond to getting 500 pages? <laughs> no, you're so cute. Well, actually... I had reached out to this writer two years previously because I wanted to write a book about female sexuality. And I was waiting for the right moment. And then that got sidelined when all of this happened. So I'd already had her in mind. And she ended up 
being the greatest person to partner with. And she really worked hard to get it in my voice. So when I'm reading the book, literally, she said, I've never worked with anybody like this that works, sort of comes through every single word to make sure that it's right. But it was so important for me that it was articulated exactly in my voice. And I think we achieved that together. Oh, for sure. Okay, so the collaborative process. There were two parts to the book. Part one, which was much harder to write because it had to do with establishing my childhood, the early years with India. So the memories were a lot harder to reach, a lot dustier. And so it actually takes a lot of energy to go and dive into those memories and to reawaken them and to flesh them out and to make them three-dimensional. So that for me was the hardest part to write. The second part was extremely easy in a certain way because I kept copious notes, probably about 500 pages of notes from the moment that I was told India was in danger. I wanted to make sure that I had a very accurate and detailed record of what was going on. So to transcribe that with my writer, because it was so detailed, was a breeze. And then really the third part of the process, which was the second part of the book, was writing in real time. As the story was unfolding, we were transcribing it. Up until the last moment when we went to press, I was like, please, can we just keep adding things? Because it's yeah, like a mad dash. Evolving. Yeah, and it still is. The paperback's coming out, coincidentally, literally a week, 10 days after Keith's guilty verdict. So it just keeps going. And it's this crazy synchrony. Oh, gosh, yes. And people don't often think about where books are published. A lot of books are published in China, so it's very hard to do last-minute updates. Life's Charmed was published with Health Communications, which is based out of Florida, and it was pretty fantastic mm-hmm. because any last-minute edits we had to do, mm-hmm. they were in-house printing. So we could do something quickly, and then they could put out a new, I don't remember how many different editions. In fact, the book just oh, yeah. out of print last, I think, at Christmas. I've got to get it on Kindle, although... If anybody wants to read your story in that one, they can get it. It's still all over Amazon. But my point, it was so amazing to be able to know that it was just in the United States and they could put a print run together very, very quickly. Do you know the printing details for yours? I don't, but it's unusual to have a book that the story's headline used as (laughs) you're going to print. And that each day there's another headline. I'm like, oh, God, I want this one in. I'm going to put this one. (laughs) <laughs> so it's pretty unusual. It's writing a book in a journalistic way where you're pretty current. Yeah. Which is extraordinary. So your author, tell us her name. Natasha Steinel. She's quite the courageous mm, yeah. advocate for women. Yes, that's one of the reasons why I thought she'd be a great fit. Talk to me about the emotional aspect of collaborating with your writer. I don't think I anticipated how cathartic it would be to go back and explore different parts of my life. And a really skilled co-writer, and obviously I've never written a book before, so it was wonderful working with a professional. She knew how to ask questions that would evoke a deeper experience of those memories. And that was a very beautiful kind of collaborative process for me, trusting her to help me open to deeper layers. And I found it very, very fulfilling, very rewarding. And ultimately, the narrative is far richer for it because she really pushed me to go deeper in places where I really would be more comfortable to sort of just 
skip over, quite frankly, especially any time dealing with any form of abuse or anything. I'm sure you understand. It's like their memories. We'd rather just go and skip over as quickly as possible. But in order for this book to really make sense, I had to go deep. And it helped me remember things that I had probably buried. Yeah. So that's the beauty of collaborating is that having someone else push you or coax you to reveal more awakens things that were probably dormant previously. Yeah. Candace Bergen talked about that process recently when, really? I had, when I had her on the show because her co-author was Betsy Rappaport, who's my mentor. And Betsy mm-hmm. helped her to go through boxes of letters from her husband, Louis Mall, who had mm-hmm. passed away and faced some beautiful memories and some really tough things. And that is the job of a collaborator. Yeah, it would be very hard to do it on one's own. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Anything else about the writing process? How do you pay? Was it a one-time shot? Do you do royalties? My deal with my co-writer was generous because I considered myself a first, well, I am a first-time writer. So I wanted to compensate her very generously. Yeah. And that's you. You are very generous. You always have been. I love that. And you gave her credit in the book. A lot of people, they want to mm-hmm. use a ghostwriter who's silent. And yeah. Do that, which as yeah. a past ghostwriter, I appreciate. <laughs> Oh, did you enjoy the process? I know you, you were in agony doing it, I'm sure. But from a writer's <laughs> standpoint, did you enjoy the collaboration? So you weren't just holding the story by yourself. Yeah, it's the most fulfilling creative process I've ever done in my life, ever. Oh. I loved it. I loved it, and I think it kept me afloat during a very, very painful time of separation from my eldest child. Because it gave me something to focus on. Oh, totally. And I, again, I had no idea until a couple of days ago that we would be victorious and that I would have her back and that everything that I dreamed, it couldn't be better. The outcome couldn't be better, but there was so much uncertainty as I was writing. But in a way, it felt like I was collaborating in shaping what was happening, even though that might have been delusional just by participating in yeah. The writing of it somehow that I was active and it like life me. imitating art. Yeah, you weren't passive. <laughs> I wasn't. Pa- I would have gone insane if I'd been passive. Can you imagine? You would have. You would have just absolutely lost it. Yeah, I mean, I lost it pretty much anyway. But <laughs> well, you know what I love too is that we talked at length in Lives Charmed about how you'd suffered incest as a child and that. Your mom and dad, they were not the perpetrators, but they hadn't validated. You said your scars didn't show because they weren't on the outside, and sometimes you would wish they had been on the outside. And, but in your fight to save India, who becomes your radical hero but your mother? Your dad's yeah. gone now, but yeah. your mom was by your side supporting you. India was so open mm-hmm. to her when she wasn't open to you. You're out in the media doing your thing, yeah. but grandma, grandma could get in. So yeah. was that incredibly full circle healing for you? Incredible. And what you just said is so interesting about the comment of the scars not being on the outside. India's scar was on the outside. <gasps> oh, my God. I have goosebumps. Yeah. Oh, Cap. But even this is some kind of crazy full circle thing. Because yeah. mm-hmm. think about it. Your history of sexual abuse. 
led to you wanting to heal your sexuality, led to you doing all this work to heal your sexuality. And let's go even back further. You didn't even remember your sexual abuse until India, your first daughter, is Mm -hmm. the same age that you were when you first suffered at the hands of your perpetrator. So around two years old, if I remember. Yeah, I mean, that's when the memory started to come back, which I'll never know for sure. Right. But my point is, is that you and India are so karmically and genetically connected and emotionally and heart connected that it was yeah. India that helped you remember your abuse. So then you go on this lifetime healing mm-hmm. of your abuse and then you get to a place where you are healed, I mean, to a radical degree, and mm-hmm. then you could then help others heal from their sexual abuse. You were the perfect person to be in a position to do that healing work. Because you had already done well, it yourself. Yeah, that is a very interesting perspective. It's true. Oh, I'm going to need a nap after this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you want to get really weird? You know, my sister's a Vedic astrologer. And yeah. I'm a lot more discerning as I get older. And mm-hmm. Vedic astrology is really predictive. And the one time I've gone against her advice and booked a retreat when she said the stars were really bad, my retreat was just a cluster F of, you know, the refrigerator broke and the alarm wouldn't stop beeping and we had a freak snowstorm and one of my retreaters got stuck on a mountain. I mean, it was just crackers. The lady stopped crying and hold herself up in the bedroom. So every other time I've done them when she says to and they're beautiful experiences. So I'm kind of a believer. So, do you remember, I was just learning astrology from my sister's mentor. This was 1992. I was living at your house. And I was like, you know what? I want to learn some of this. So, I take your chart. I take India's chart, my husband's chart, and my kid's chart. And I go off on that little wonky afternoon. Do you remember what I said to you when I came back to the house? No. I hope you don't get mad at me because you got mad at me when I told you. He said, you guys have to be really careful of India. He said... Now, who was it? It wasn't Chakrapani, was it? It wasn't Chakrapani. It was Drew Lawrence. He said, you have to be really careful of India. She's an angel. She's a really high spirit. And there's danger of her being kidnapped. And I was terrified because you had just gotten a new (laughs) nanny. I was terrified. Mm -hmm. I came home and I said to Mark, I go, maybe the nanny's dangerous. Maybe they're going to kidnap India. And he's like, well, you have to tell Catherine. I'm like, I told you, but I was all in a freaking tizzy. And you were like, Linda, I mean, <laughs> you were alarmed. <laughs> well, yeah. You were so alarmed. And he didn't give me a date. He didn't say next Monday. He just said there's danger of her being kidnapped. So I thought it meant imminent. You know, she was a baby. So I'm thinking it, it's like tomorrow. And you said, well, the only weird thing, Linda, is I'm working on a screenplay. Didn't we work on a screenplay called Kidnapped? No, Abducted. <gasps> but it was about aliens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, holy hell. You know, we just shouldn't even have been allowed to talk in those days. What's interesting about this, here we are 26 years later, And my sister, she's been doing astrology for a long time, and I don't think she's hireable, guys, so don't flood me with questions. But she says that very often couples will come to her over the years, have come to her, you know, with a kid who had committed suicide or a kid who was a drug addict or something. And they're just besotted with guilt. And she'll look at the child's chart and she'll say, 
it wasn't your fault. This was their karma this time around. It's super clear. This was their path. Mm -hmm. And it takes away so much pain from a grieving parent to know, okay, I didn't screw up or there was nothing I could have done to alleviate this. This was the path. And maybe they chose me with these particular circumstances, but I'm not 100% responsible for this one. Yeah. I thought about that when I was reading that. I thought, damn. I was so afraid that India was going to get kidnapped when she was a year old. It never occurred to me it would happen when she was when she was twenty. Oh, <sighs> so bizarre. Yeah, crazy, crazy. That is crazy. Is Sri Lawrence still alive? He is, and he's still practicing. I think I haven't gone to him in twenty something uh-huh. years. But he told me some things back then that were very, very accurate about my life that have transpired. He went to India and studied from the Sanskrit texts. And so, you know, he read the ancient scrolls. Mm -hmm. I think he's quite wise. I hope I'm, and we should say, anybody listening to this, always do your Mm -hmm. own research, guys. If Catherine's testimony here in this book is any warning, it's always use your own guidance system. In my experience, Drew's advice was quite accurate. Okay, so can we talk about your grandfather for a minute? Sure. So your mother, being four years old and seeing soldiers running through the palace as they had to flee for to move to Africa, what was it like for you and your mother going back when the coffin was lifted out of its grave in Switzerland and brought back to Serbia where he was finally given an official hero's burial? Well, the most intense part was being in the room when they opened up the coffin. <gasps> and the coroner, he asked my mom, he's like, do you want to see? And she's like, no, no, absolutely not. So, of course, me goes, well, I want to see. Of course. And my mom not want to be upstage goes, okay, fine, then I'll see too. Oh. But it was very hard. It was very hard. I saw my grandfather, my grandmother's body, and my uncle was actually never met. Oh, Catherine. So that was very, very intense and probably a mistake. Because <laughs> you can't <laughs> unsee that. I've made worse. No, you can't. And then, and were they killed by Nazis? I don't remember the story. No, no, not no. They all died natural deaths. My grandma okay. died. She was very old in her night, like in 1997. She died and she was 90 something. My grandpa died, I think, when he was 80, when I was 13. No, 15. He died of leukemia. And then my uncle died in a car crash when my mom was about 16. So that's right. But, but my mom was always convinced that there was some type of. I don't know, weird. Yeah, she had sort of a conspiracy theory about his death, which I think the Queen of England did some type of investigation on her behalf and said, sadly, for once in your family, this was actually just an accident. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, so even back to your epic storyline of your life, Catherine, in your first movie role, you played Princess Diana two different times. That is true. Back to that stranger than fiction. <laughs> okay, so whenever you go to Serbia, that must just be a really intense experience for you to be back on that soil when you were you weren't raised there. But this is a place of deep yeah. lineage for you and for India. How did India feel? Uh, you'll have to ask her. I think because she went there to assist Piers Brosnan in the November Man. That's and, right. Um, which was my place trying to get her out of Nixie. Which worked for a while. You got her out of there. 
I got her out. Yeah, but they sucked her right back in by shaming her and bullying her. It was terrible and unbeknownst to me at the time. But uh, she loves Serbia. My mom loves living there. I, having always been brought during my childhood, it was the communist regime under Tito. So we were always told, no point learning the language. You'll never get to go back. Nobody imagined back then in the 70s that communism was going to crumble. And so... The first time I went back was to do some cosmetic campaign, I think in 1996. And I was intellectually not attached. I didn't think of myself. It was then Yugoslavia back then. Right. But as we were landing in the plane, I remember I had this deep visceral reaction and tears poured down my face as I saw the countryside and I was shocked. So somewhere deep inside, there is like at a heart level, I feel a, I feel a connection to that country. Yeah, no doubt. So the book, so you speak six languages. I do not speak six. How many languages, including, if you're including even pig Latin, I speak French and Spanish, that's it. French and Spanish and English and pig Latin. I I actually can't speak pig Latin, so I'm kidding. I I know. Three languages, that's it. (laughs) Okay, so you speak three languages. Your mother speaks how many languages? I think eight. Oh, Lord. And have you read your book or skimmed your book in any other language yet? No, I don't even know if it's been published in any other language. The last book with Simon and Schuster was uh, Generation Green. So it was a long time ago. It was like 2003. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, they'll mail me a copy with Korean on the side or Indian or something. You know, they mail me something and I'm like, oh, I can't read it. But thanks. <laughs> that is so cool. That is so, so cool. cool. I hope I have a whole shelf full of different languages of my book one day. That would be amazing because what I'm hoping, this book was read by quite a few women who were in DOS who were still digging their heels in like India. And when they read the book, it helped them wake up. Oh, Because I'm able to bring together so much information in a way that they're able to see that it's sort of sequential and factual as opposed to there were a lot of things that were kept from people. So hopefully, in a way, it could be used as a deep programming tool. It's a cautionary tale. It gives a lot of information about how to recognize cults, how to avoid cults. So I'm hoping that it's able to help people in the future. Oh, good. there's no doubt. I think it's going to be a Bible of the field. I think it'll be one of those oh. timeless, backlist bestsellers. Because once enough people hear about it, they'll realize, oh, this isn't a tragedy book. This is a suspense story that's riveting that you can't put down, but it's also immensely educational. And it's very important. It's an important piece of work. It's a literary, journalistic, brilliant piece of work that people need to know about. And I think word of mouth will carry it for a very, very long time. And I don't think anything's been written like it, Kath. Well, I've read a lot of good cult books, but I haven't read one about somebody who's trying to take down a cult or helps take down a cult and then does it successfully and the end of the book is this guilty verdict, like as it's happening. No, so that definitely <laughs> it has its own category. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Didn't you have at one point you had a a cult trauma therapist tell you that in her twenty five years of work she had never once seen a cult leader arrested before there was a Jim Jones tragedy or mass suicide yeah. or something, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah. that's correct. I think this is unprecedented. And I think that this verdict spells doomsday for cults in this country. Because 
the argument that everyone has come up against is always, well, is consent. And freedom. But what the government, yes, exactly. And what the government has so expertly kind of broken down are the components of coercion and how you lose access to your consent, how your consent is removed from you. And this is groundbreaking. I think this is going to be studied as case law till kingdom come. I really do. It's the first time that the government has been able to, well, has stepped in and prosecuted. And I'm so grateful. Wow. So grateful that they actually saw what was going on, recognized the abuses, and they did something about it. How much of the Me Too movement was part of this, do you think? Because it seemed like that was really helpful, that energy behind you. I think it was very helpful. I think if we had been in a climate of even Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky, back when, nothing would have happened. Mm -hmm. I think it needed the Me Too movement to make it intolerable to basically ignore abuse, subjugation, exploitation of women. Like, we've reached some sort of threshold, and I just think that it was a convergence of so many elements that brought this to its close, and that was one very important aspect. I think so, too. So now that you're an author, are you loving it? Do you want to keep going? Because we're waiting for the follow-up. I want the sequel. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm afraid because I'm afraid if I start writing, I'm going to invite, I'm going to invite something horrendous <laughs> into my life. That's going to no! Roller, roller coaster ride to hell that I'm going to have to extricate myself from. So I'm afraid. Yeah, d- <laughs> don't be doing that. Don't be doing that. But you are doing the foundation work with the sex trafficking and helping other women, right? Yes. Okay. So maybe you just write other people's stories, not your own. How about that? Yeah, how about that? (laughs) (laughs) It's a very good idea. My little epic friend. (laughs) I just love you so much. You know, uh, the Archangel Michael is throughout this book. Starting with you, at the beginning of the book, you're obsessed with finding Archangel Michael's likenesses all over Europe when you're with Bill, India's dad. Mm -hmm. And you're traveling together and you're looking, looking. And he's not woo-woo like that. But a few Mm -hmm. weeks into the pregnancy, Bill has a dream that the two of you are creating an especially conscious being. And it's, as he says to you, it's our destiny to protect her. And you're like, what? (laughs) But, you know, you knew that Archangel Michael, he led God's army to vanquish evil from heaven. Mm -hmm. And I love Mm -hmm. how at the end of the book, you're sitting in court and you suddenly see these angels gathered together that had taken down this yeah. These are real life angels. And I just, I was so moved by that. And you want to hear the weirdest part about that, Kath? Sure. You gave me a Baccarat crystal angel that I've had on my mantle ever since. You gave it to me in like 1992. And I was prepping for this interview yesterday and I walked by it and I was like, oh, there's Indy's little angel. And I grabbed it and it's sitting on my desk. I've always thought of you as an angel. I've always thought of India as an angel. And I just want to thank you for using your wings to uplift all of us. And I mean it. Thank you, Linda. That's a very, very beautiful thing to say. Thank you so much. Wow. I really appreciate it. You're amazing. I'm so proud of you. I'm so, so, so proud of you. I'm grateful to be on the other side of the story. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Just normal, Cass. Just, yeah. Yeah. Going to have some normal. normal life. I don't know that we need to battle good versus evil on a Marvel kind of scale. On a Marvel stage. <laughs> no. No more good versus evil. I think I've got an idea. Okay. This is what I'm going to close with. I've always known you were a writer. Everyone who knows you and loves you knows you're a writer. So now you're going to write fiction. That's where you're going to put all that good versus evil. Okay? You're <laughs> just going to put not it in interesting. Some... <laughs> I know it's not. It's pale, pale comparison to reality. That's the sad truth. And if this was fiction and I'd yeah. written this as fiction, no one would believe this. Story. No, I know. In fact, that's... that's you know, <sighs> That is yeah. the bummer, and you're absolutely right, yeah. because I was sitting there reading this thinking, this is very similar to the crime thrillers that I've gotten so into as of the last couple of years, and yet it's even better for me because it's true. Mm. But, you know, there are a lot of really good fiction <laughs> novels, and they become really good movies, so do we need to get you deprogrammed oh. on that belief? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. I can, I can handle it. Thank you, honey, very much. I love you, baby. We love you. Okay. And love the crush. Okay, Okay. honey. And you too. Bye, baby. Yes. Bye, honey. A jury in New York has found the leader of a self-help group guilty of seven counts of sex trafficking and racketeering. Elation, joy, shock, actually, because this was a complicated case. And there, there were so many predicate acts and there were so many nuances in the way that Keith had set this up is for everyone else to take the fall and to feign innocence. So you never know if people are going to see through this level of ruse. People have been duped for decades and he's been getting away with it. So there was that fear that this time too he would slide through, but no... Nobody can get away with anything in New York City. God, I love New York. And I love you, our beautiful listeners. It has been so meaningful for me to put this episode together and share it with you. Two decades ago, Catherine did me a huge solid by allowing me to tell her story in my book. And she very selflessly accompanied me in the media to promote it. We were on Extra together and on Lisa Gibbons' talk show where Catherine shared her abuse stories for the first time. I certainly had no inkling I'd ever be in a media position to return the favor. So this has been just my total joy. If you love this show and want to pay it forward, along with sharing your love on iTunes or wherever you listen to us, please purchase a copy of Captive, co-authored by Natasha Stoinoff and put your support behind this important book. I have a new name for Kath, the Aaron Brockovich of sex trafficking and cult busting. If you'd like to learn more about how to support her efforts at protecting girls and women through her nonprofit foundation, go to katherineoxenberg.com slash foundation. I said earlier in the show that my sister, Carol Allen, is not hireable for her astrology readings. That's not totally accurate. She gives very popular weekend relationship workshops in Los Angeles, New York, and now all over the country. And they do come with a Vedic astrology reading. You can contact Carol through her website, where she also has predictive astrological products you can download immediately over at loveisinthestars.com. For info on a few remaining spots for my 2019 writing retreats, or to see pics of India and Tosh as kids on today's blog, Oh my gosh, so cute, their little faces. 
go to bookmama.com. Lastly, I want to say that India and I have been in contact. She is so full of love, you guys. And she wanted me to say that she is enormously proud of her mama and so grateful to the government for how they champion truth in this case. India's holding off on doing media for as long as she can, but says she will be more vocal when the time feels right. India's feeling a lot of gratitude these days and wanted me to let you know that she and her friends have come through this stronger than they ever could have imagined. And she is extending her heartfelt thank yous for everyone's encouragement, love, and prayers. Amen. Until next time, right on.